Five of the ten Best Picture nominees for the year 1943 were set during wartime, and four of those five were set during World War II, which was still going on. Movie theaters often played what were essentially short reel public service announcements, and if you went to the movies in 1943, here's one you would have seen. In a world where millions are starving, America has become the breadbasket as well as the arsenal of democracy. Our farmlands and ranges must produce more food than ever before to supply our own needs and to help our fighting allies. In spite of record-breaking farm production, food requirements are mounting even faster, for American food is being used to defeat the Axis and shorten the war. Americans not in the armed forces will get less of the common foods to which they are accustomed, but by rationing, by sharing what we have, and by using our food supply wisely, our nation at war can still support a healthy, active people. That voiceover was from a short reel produced by the United States Office of War Information Bureau of Motion Pictures, essentially a propaganda wing of the government that collaborated with Hollywood on messaging for the war effort. And yeah, propaganda for war is generally never a great thing. But to a nation emerging from a near deadly decade of economic crash and depression, the war against the Axis powers provided the long-needed boost to pull the country upward if Americans could just plan their menus and curb their appetites accordingly. It was a necessary lesson learned the hard way. But before we get into any hard lessons this week, let's ease in, shall we, in a slightly more relaxing way. Here's an opening number from a Green Mill performance by a Machete regular. This is Natalie Grace Alford. You woke up dead in your hand. You feel with every toxic chemical in your bed. Okay. 
Machete Audio Magazine, issue date April 18th, 2020. In this week's episode, we're going to do the best we can with the tools that we have. That is, armed with relevant archive content from Paper Machete's past, as well as fresh, up-to-the-minute essays about how we're living this week. And this week, we'll check in on the state of the stimulus checks, which should be super easy since we live in a 24-7 surveillance state, and we'll meditate on said surveillance state as well. We have hot Kanye content and Gwyneth Goop and some hilarious stand-up comedy. But to kick things off, let's start in America's Kitchen, a very good place to start. So I guess quarantine is making lots of people into artisanal bread bakers. Very old-timey. Here's an old-timey bread recipe from about 80 years ago. Pound and a half of wholemeal flour. That's flour that uses the entire grain of wheat mashed up. One and a half teaspoons of salt. Teaspoon and a half of dry yeast. Two tablespoons of honey or molasses. Two cups tepid water. Mixed together after they rise, these ingredients are enough for two loaves which bake at 400 degrees for 30 minutes. This recipe is for what's called the National Loaf, which sounds kind of cool if it's an emo punk band from 2006, but it's not. <laughs> By government mandate, the National Loaf was the only variety of bread available to British citizens during the Second World War. In addition to many direct bombing raids on Britain, Germany attempted to starve and suborn the island nation by attacking the countless freight ships that delivered the bulk of its food supply. This led to austere rationing measures, a highly complicated system of points and coupons in which customers had to register with grocers and each grocer was supplied only with an exacting minimum inventory to meet the needs of said registered customers and no more. The reasons for a mandated bread recipe concocted by the Ministry of Food was that 70% of Britain's grains were imported, so the staple wheat 
had to be pragmatically preserved and processed in a way that maximized its nutritional value. Hence, the whole meal flour, which included the bran and germ from the head of the grain, was called the wheat berry. According to everyone who ate it, the national loaf sucked. It was mushy and dense and gray in color. Just a bummer, man. Like national barf. And grocers weren't allowed to sell it until the day after it was baked. Stale loaf sliced more easily and stressed further. Nobody liked it, but everybody ate it. Everybody. In 1942, when America's first lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, visited Buckingham Palace, she ate off gold and silver platters with the royals, but the bread she was served with dinner was the same stale, flavorless starch that was on every English peasant's table. Mrs. Roosevelt, of course, had her own peasant class of citizens surviving on food rations to fret over. The American food rationing system of the Second World War was familiar to any citizens old enough to remember the first. Now, in World War I, responsible food consumption and preservation were heavily encouraged, but not legally sanctioned, by the U.S. Food Administration, a wartime agency that was headed up by future President Herbert Hoover. And it's important to give Hoover his due here. If most people know good old Herbert today, is from a very unkind, adjectival nickname that was given to the impoverished shanty towns of tents and shacks that blighted the national landscape as a result of his laissez-faire, small government approach to the Great Depression, Hoovervilles. But before this misfortune, his name was made into a transitive verb, and it was a good thing, to hooverize, meant to thriftily ration one's food supply. Under Hoover and the U.S. Food Administration, Americans came to believe the department's coined slogan, food will win the war. Hoover's aggressive campaign of home economics and encouragement of food substitutes that benefited the national interest resulted in over 10 million homes signing pledges to commit to meatless Tuesdays and wheatless Wednesdays. But again, this was encouraged, not legally mandated. By the time of the Second World War, there was direct government intervention. World War II was a total war. Total war means one in which all of a society's available resources, goods, and services are rerouted to support the war effort. Everything a country has at its disposal is prioritized over non-combatant needs. Women must sacrifice nylon stockings as nylon parachutes become the top priority. Civilian motorists must make do with synthetic rubber tires because natural rubber is required for military jeeps. Because our maritime trade routes were already being disrupted even prior to entering World War II, President Roosevelt set up the Office of Price Administration which controlled consumption through rationing. This was before Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. Sugar was the first commodity to be rationed, half a pound per week per person. Housewives learned practices like saving the syrup in a fruit cocktail can to sweeten other foods. A cake on your birthday was a rare, decadent treat. Once coffee was rationed, 
uh, roasted grain instant beverage called Postum surged in popularity as it helped stretch your coffee, of which every adult was allowed only one pound every five weeks. Gelatin sales boomed. This was the ingredient that turned your half pound of butter into a pound of butter spread. Growing one's own vegetables during this era, of course, is where we get the term victory garden. Meat shortages led to increased consumption of rabbit and horses. In New Orleans, radio stations broadcast recipes for pickled muskrat. And all of the rendered fats and runoff grease a kitchen could muster were turned over to a local dispensary, literally to be turned into glycerin for explosive munitions. There were actual cartoons at the movies explaining how leftover bacon grease from your frying pan could help sink a German U-boat. American consumer and dietary sacrifice during wartime wasn't just the law, it was virtuous, patriotic, to preserve and savor rather than hoard and gorge. This was understood to be in the public interest, the common good. You know, whatever vague, unspecified, great American era Donald Trump meant to return us to, it's possible he was implying this deeply unjust timeline one of women in kitchens and Japanese Americans behind barbed wire and black people under Jim Crow. But today, as our grocery store shelves are increasingly bare and our food plants are shuddering to protect workers and presidential propaganda press conferences include panicked and unconvincing assurances that our food supply is safe. These concepts of rationing, personal sacrifice, wasting nothing for the sake of your fellow citizen or a future generation's ecology. These ideas seem, if not great again, then at least thoroughly decent, you know? I'd happily settle for decent again. Anyway, obviously doctors are in the news this week for a bunch of reasons. And this called to mind a stand-up set that was performed recently at the Machete. And for extra topicality, there are also references to safety masks and toilet paper here, but that's just kind of a weird coincidence. Anyway, this comedian is wonderful and this set still cracks me up. From Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, here's Helen Hong. to be here uh, and I'm happy that we're all together putting laughter into the world because we need that shit right now right it's it is some dark ass times right now I uh, I don't know if you guys are white knuckling it through your Twitter feed on the daily but I am just grinding my teeth through it and I decided it is such stressful times right now that it's probably a good time for me to get a dog not because of the soothing effects of a dog, but because I heard that dog Xanax is cheaper than people Xanax. <laughs> and my prescription is running out. I'm like, give me the damn dog. Give me two dogs. Give me all the dogs. As long as they come with meds. 
did you guys know that you can take dog Xanax? I heard this from an actual medical professional that dog Xanax is the same as people Xanax. You just have to mess around with the amounts. Like one every seven hours for the dog is one every one hour for you. You don't have to wrap the pill in bologna or anything. You can just take it. Just take it. You don't have to mix it in peanut butter. Just take it anytime. I'm gonna have that dog on years and years of anti-anxiety medication. Just years. At some point, the vet is gonna be like, Helen, I think your dog's doing okay. And I'm gonna be like, oh God, no. It's really rough times for the dog right now, okay? The dog had a horrible Tinder date last night. The dog has been reading some very racist comments on its YouTube channel. The dog's mom wants it to marry a Korean doctor. It's my mom, guys. That's my mom. My mom wants me to marry a Korean doctor because that lady stays on brand. And I just don't know what the big deal is with Korean doctors. I actually had to go to a Korean doctor very recently and he was the worst doctor. He was phoning it in. He was playing Fortnite in the corner. I was like, bro. I have a very controversial theory about Asian doctors. Buckle up. I think Asian doctors might be the worst doctors. By the way, this is probably a theory that I can have and the cellist can have and none of the fucking rest of you can have. Don't try to get all racist at your doctor's office. This is just for us, right cellist? Here's my theory. I don't want my medical care in the hands of someone who can't even stand up to their parents. <laughs> I mean, come on. Let's face it, half of Asian doctors don't want to be doctors at all. They want to be rappers like the rest of us. <laughs> and how are you gonna fight diabetes if you can't even fight your own tiger mom, Dr. Kim? <laughs> I want my doctor to be a non-Asian, non-Indian, non-Jewish doctor. Cause you know that doctor had to go through some shit. Like, nobody thought that person was gonna make it as a doctor. Can you imagine even applying to medical school with a name like Bubba O'Leary? Oh, yikes. Thank you for your application, Bubba. But we have seven Patels in line ahead of you, so. Have a seat, have a seat. Uh, we're marching. That's something some of us are doing sometimes. I took my mother, I took my 72-year-old Korean mother to the Women's March this past year. Very exciting. She, uh, she was like, she was like, I'm not, I want to let this asshole know. And I was like, damn straight, mom. Uh, my mom does not speak English very well, so I was like, uh, mom, you, we, you might want to learn, uh, learn a chant. We might do some chanting. Here's a chant that we might do. Hey, hey, ho, ho, Donald Trump has got to go. And she was like, okay, okay, okay. Hoo, hoo! Ha, ha! Donald Trump, go away! Go away! I was like, you nailed it, mom. You nailed it. 
she showed up to the march wearing a giant Asian lady visor. You know, one of those <laughs> flying saucers that you can fit about 12 people under. She was like, I hate president, but also sun damage, okay? I hate sun damage. So, and then someone had also given her a pink pussy hat. So she wore that on top of the visor. She was wearing a sun protection resistance combination on her head. And then at one point during the march, she busted out the Asian airport mask. So I'm like, really, lady? Between the visor and the freaking mask, you are like, the only way you could be more stereotypical is if you crashed a car into this march right now. Uh, I recently had, uh, I, I, um, it is, it's stressful times. It is dark, dark and stressful times. And I feel like the dark times are bringing out the worst in people. Have you noticed that? It's just bringing out like shitty behavior. I recently experienced the most petty shit I have ever experienced in my entire life. I was in public and I got into a poop off. I'm going to explain it. I know you've all been there. It's when you're in public you need to take a shit, you go to the public restroom and it's empty and you're like, yes, I'm gonna take the biggest dump in here. <laughs> you go into your stall, you take off your pants, you settle in, you're about to do your business and then you hear some other bitch walk in. <laughs> now you're in a holding pattern. <laughs> you hear her go into her stall, she takes off her pants, she settles in and then everything goes silent. <laughs> This is when you know you're officially in a poop-off. Cause ain't nobody need to pee. Everybody need to shit. And we can't co-shit with strangers. We're not animals. We're not wildebeests or men. I know you guys can. You guys can just shit. You have no problem. 10 of you in a stall, shit, 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 shit. You guys are having shit Olympics in there. No. Ladies, we're a little bit more genteel. One bitch gets to shit now, the other bitch needs to go away and shit later. We all know this. And whoever sits there gritting their teeth silently longer wins the poop off. We all know these are the rules. So I won, I won the poop off. I sat there silently holding my sphincter. I hear this woman go, <sighs> She gets up, she puts on her pants, she kicks open the door of the stall, she washes her hands, and then on her way out, she does the most thing I have ever experienced. She turns the light off! What? what? Oh my God! I'm like, what kind of diabolical comic book villain are you? What kind of psycho Hannibal Lecter shit is this? Now I've got to shit in the dark. I'm like, what? I'm like fumbling for the toilet paper. I'm hoping the wipe is good. As I'm finding my way to the door, I'm like, oh, lady. I may have won the poop off, but you won the war. You guys have been amazing. Come see me at Zany's this weekend. Thank you. That was the delightful Helen Hong. So we're living in a time when we're more dependent than ever on our devices. And this means we're living in a time when it's easier than ever for us to be surveilled via our devices. For more on this topic, here's an essay by Bilal Dardai. Let me tell you how stupid I was. 
I'm six years old and I live two blocks away from my elementary school, which means I get to walk to and from each day. And because it's 1983, sometimes I'm even allowed to go home for lunch. The most hazardous stretch of this five-minute journey is the crossing at Belmont and Prairie, a diagonal jaunt from the northeast to southwest corners overseen by a cheerful, day-glow orange crossing guard. After a few months of this routine, standing on the curb, feet away from suburbanites rushing toward the metro station or the Eisenhower, I began idly measuring how long it takes for the lights to change. I observed that the lights for the side street last a mere 30 seconds, and that those of Belmont, the busier artery, last exactly 60. And it becomes a game for me to begin crossing Belmont in the exact eye blink that the traffic stops. Before the end of the year, I narrowly avoid getting run over by a car turning quickly left as it tries to beat the red, and from that moment on I wait patiently until the crossing guard is in the center of the intersection. But it's not just my disregard for pedestrian safety that embarrasses me now. What's stupid is that in that moment when I almost died, I felt a brief flash of anger at the person who worked under the stoplight. As I said, it was 1983 and I was six. Large-scale systemic automation in civic spaces wasn't a concept that Sesame Street had covered quite yet, and anything more advanced than that was positively Jetsonian. So yes, it's true. I believe that there was a series of small chambers under the streets, and within these chambers someone or several someones would press a button or flip a switch or throw a lever every 30 or 60 seconds, and that this network was how traffic moved smoothly from one place to another. On the day a careening hatchback tried to end me, I thought that some unseen subterranean clock puncher had slacked off on their very important responsibilities. I'm 42 years old, and I live five blocks away from my son's elementary school. Right now, neither of us are walking any further than my back alley so that we can kick a soccer ball around a crude arrangement of recycling bins. The wireless telephone that I am recording this essay into is capable of speaking to me in the voice of a calm British woman when I ask her to look up the score of a World Cup quarterfinal match in 1954, and smart enough now to understand that she is a complicated tapestry of code and user experience design instead of an actual human being living in an underground chamber somewhere in the world and waiting patiently for me to ask her a question. But I still refer to her with the feminine pronoun. And I still, to a degree, I admit, fear her. Karnataka is a state in southwestern India, home to approximately 65 million Indian citizens within a nation of 1.3 billion. As of the moment I write this, India's measures to contain the COVID-19 pandemic have seen India suffer 420 dead among 12,759 confirmed cases, 13 of these in Karnataka. From the perspective of someone living in a nation of 330 million, which has lost 35,000 people in two months, this number is both enviable and astounding. And it compels me to ask myself how I feel about Quarantine Watch, a mobile app that was mandated by the state government of Karnataka on March 20th by telling citizens of the state in a tweet that a selfie an hour will keep the police away. As many hashtag home quarantined are stepping out, the Quarantine Watch mobile app requires these citizens to send a selfie every waking hour. 
If the GPS coordinates change, they will be sent to a government-run mass quarantine center. Those of us in the Chicago area may have felt both sobered and entertained by the internet meme of Mayor Lori Lightfoot's stern visage traveling around the city and putting us back in our homes with her unforgiving Gorgon stare. What India is doing is different. What India is doing is reinterpreting the language of hostage negotiation by demanding that its citizens provide the government with proof of compliance under penalty of abduction and enforced health care. In the meantime, countries such as Spain and China have been trying other methods of maintaining the quarantine, such as unleashing drones in the cities and using them to disperse groups that defy social distancing, like those howling letters that the wizards send each other in the Harry Potter books. When devout Christians in Kentucky decided to spend the Easter weekend going to church, as if an omniscient being could only hear their prayers from one building on earth, the governor recorded license plates in the church parking lots to presumably send out monetary fines using the database of the DMV. Like many of you, I was raised in a world of technological wonders that only grew more jaw-dropping with each passing year. And also, like many of you, I was fed a steady diet of media that taught us about the worst-case scenarios for advanced computing, analytics, data, and artificial intelligence, magnified further by the demands for surveillance in the name of security. After enough Terminators, Matrixes, malevolent military supercomputers, and Westworlds, I won't even engage cruise control on my car, because I worry it gives the car too much power over me. And yet, let me tell you how stupid we are. This past week, I've also watched as elected officials and ordinary citizens have acted as if a widespread, deadly contagion was an inconvenience at best and a hoax at worst. I've watched crowds of entitled idiots shut down roads in Michigan that led to hospitals full of suffocating victims, watched as pro-wrestling meathead Vince McMahon was appointed to a task force on easing pandemic restrictions. I am drowning in story after story of people choosing the worst possible decisions in the midst of a global crisis, and I am unable to decide if we would be better off letting the machines have dominion until we are willing to evolve beyond the lizard places in our brains. Alexa, I might ask, would you mind taking the wheel for a few years or so? I do understand the terrifying doors that are opened by Quarantine Watch, especially in a country led by a nationalist figure like Narendra Modi. I remember and still live with the excesses of the Patriot Act. I am aware that everything I post online may one day be used against me in a kangaroo court of questionable laws. I wish so much to say with an unwavering voice that I am unwilling to give my agency over to the automatons but my determination is not the same as that of others, and so many of those others cannot get it through their thick skulls that these measures are necessary to save lives. Listen, one of America's enduring folk tales is the story of John Henry, who challenged a mechanical pile driver to a contest of strength and efficiency. John Henry defeated the machine and died in the process, and in the decades since I first heard that story, I've never understood the moral I'm supposed to take from it, whether the lesson is about the will of John Henry or the inevitability of innovation. But I understand that human beings are able to tell stories of men like John Henry in ways that machines cannot, 
and I know that the story I tell now is being delivered from a lonely bedroom on a late Thursday evening instead of being told to a room full of attentive people on a Saturday afternoon. We do not have rooms full of people right now, and I want the rooms full of people to come back. So after five weeks of quarantine, I yield to the apps and to the drones and to the other draconian measures, and I hope I still have the strength left to push back on them when we manage to get out of this. Bilal Dardai is a member of the Neo-Futurists. So last weekend, Saturday Night Live put out a new episode, a quarantine episode, just like everybody else is making. And their musical guest was Chris Martin of Coldplay. And what's, what's so crazy about that, you guys, is that earlier this year, we actually hosted the ex-wife of Chris Martin at the Paper Machete, which is... I, I know, right? Like, the odds of that. You might remember that a few months back, the Goop Laboratories sold a new candle that was scented like Gwyneth Paltrow's vagina. Needless to say, we weren't going to let this news item pass without weighing in, so we went straight to the source. Here's Oscar-winning actress and Goop entrepreneur Gwyneth Paltrow. And this candle smells like my vagina. I won this Coldplay song in the divorce. It's the hole between your butt and where you pee. It's my dark, damp little pocket of me. It's tuna fish mixed with vanity. My meaty purse. In this world, there's war and suffering. People are poor, and that's super gross. I was on Glee for a few episodes. Life is the worst. But lights will guide you home. My vagina fills the room. Veg candles will fix you. is too perfect to keep to myself. So lucky you. I have a child named Apple. Imagine the smell like Greek yogurt in the heat. Chorizo grease on a fat dog's teeth. Sweaty taints on a subway seat. A dying corpse in a hearse. 
That's what the candle smells like. Lights will guide you home. My vagina fills the room. Vag candles will fix you. This candle retails for 75 US dollars. If you order your vagina candle right now, I will throw in a wick made of my own pubic hair. The government shut down my Jane pussy eggs because they were too powerful. And let me be clear, they'll try to shut this down too, okay? The whole world will tell you, no Gwyneth, you can't be gorgeous and an entrepreneur. No Gwyneth, you can't divorce Chris Martin and still be a likable gal. No Gwyneth, you have to stop. You have to stop slapping the word vagina on normal products and having people that look up to you buy them. But you know what I say to those people? Why don't you suck on my big, rich, white bitch dick? Gwyneth Paltrow was created and played for the paper machete by the ridiculous Ashley Lyston. So a lot of Americans are obviously waiting on their stimulus checks and justifiably wondering what the hell the holdup is. We're so excited to welcome to the Machete Audio Magazine to explain it, the ghost of the late chemical baron, David Koch. Thank you, Chris, so much. Hello, yes, it is me, the ghost of David Koch, calling to you from heaven. Yeah, that's right. Believe it or not, I'm in heaven. Uh, turns out God's a rich asshole, too. So, <laughs> I mean, he wasn't rich until I donated some money his way, so he changed some of his laws, policies, and rules that would kind of bend in my favor. You know? Sound familiar, idiots? <laughs> Oh, God, I miss being alive and rich. It was, 
It was great. Now, I just wanted to ask a quick question to everyone down there on Earth. Uh, how are you guys enjoying that $1,200 you got, huh? <laughs> you enjoying that $1,200? I used air quotes just now. I don't think that read. Uh, if this were live, that would have made more sense. But uh, $1,200, it's going to go a long way for you guys, you know? You can pay off your credit card debt, your student loan debt, your payday loans. You know, companies my friends own. It's almost as if this was a stimulus directly to debt collectors, but hey, I've been at the game so long, what do I know? Maybe you will spend it on food and shelter. I used air quotes again. Could you guys tell that? It's, I guess it doesn't work over an audio. It says hold for laughs, but I feel like that wouldn't be getting anything. Air quotes, though, they are, by the way, those are huge in heaven. God especially loves them, you know? He's like, yeah, I care for all my children. It's all in air quotes. And he says that, and then he winks at me while he jacks off while watching you guys fight a war. I tell you, he's a crazy asshole. He just likes watching people suffer like me. I mean, why else would he not just create us all in heaven as his equals so we could party for eternity? Like, clearly not. God wants control. He wants to watch you suffer. So, of course, say it with me, he can jack off to it. He's like the villain from 8mm. Which I get is an obscure reference, but God makes us watch it every morning while we eat breakfast, so just kind of in my head. But the Crusades, whew. Yeah, God said that was an all-you-could-jack buffet watching that. All the war waged in his name. <laughs> Talk about holy, and air quotes, shit. But yeah, God just likes war. He likes war and poverty, and he hates Jesus. Yeah. He's all like, no son of mine. Yeah. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, more like it's easier for a socialist hippie to end up on a cross for pissing off his father. And it's at this point the crowd groans and is upset, so I'm just holding for that. But hey, Jesus got what he deserves, saying the meek shall inherit the earth. Yeah, right. And my kids shall inherit my wealth. Give me a break. I was buried with my money and it's staying there. I'm getting a little off track here. Look, I just want to say the government's sending out $1,200 to you all in the hopes you just use it to pay off their corporate buddies, you know, credit card companies, student loans. I mean, mwah! that is the kind of subtle manipulation that I miss. <sighs> what a time to be a rich asshole. But hey, you know, we can't live forever until they make a medicine that makes you live forever that only rich people can afford and have access to. But watching you all spend the money the government gave you back into the debt collecting market, well... It makes me a little bit hard, I'll be honest. And I was going to say it warmed my heart, but uh, that would mean I gained more sympathy, and that's not the case. So it made my heart more frigid and more blackened, you know, like a coal a poor person in West Virginia would have to mine without assurances of his own safety. Or her own safety, women. You can be abused for menial labor, too. Don't forget. Don't forget about yourself. Oh, equality, I tell you. It's something I'm not in favor of, but I do think it's hilarious. Anyhow, just wanted to say I miss taking advantage of all of you, and uh, I would say I'll see you up here in heaven soon, but you're not getting up here without a solid 401k. We uh, we convinced Justice Antonin Scalia to make that rule. Didn't take a lot of convincing, I have to tell you. It's kind of like Citizens United. But uh, I'm sure you're in, you'll be used to hell. It'll be something you're very familiar with. Earth is a lot like it. A place that's slowly getting hotter, and right now a guy who's kind of reddish in colors in charge is a real asshole. Yeah, I think you'll 
figure hell out pretty quick. So thank you so much for having me, and uh, you'll never be free or have money. Thank you. The Ghost of David Koch was created and played for the machete by the never less than scandalous comedian Joe Fernandez, whose first album drops later this spring, unless God strikes him down first. And, you know, like he's already recorded the album. It's I mean, it's in the can. So even if God strikes him down, keep an eye out for that. And finally, this week, Kanye West. Oh, Kanye. Kanye gave an interview to GQ magazine in which he announced he will be voting for the very first time in his life this November for you know who. So when Kanye first went full MAGA, it was late April of 2018, about two years ago right now. And like no one knew what to say or do with this. We put one of our regulars on the case, and here's part of that set from WBEZ's Vocalo. Here's Jill Hopkins. Uh, my name is Jill, and I, I love Kanye West. Oh. I know. I love Kanye. Uh, and here's why. Well, Kanye Omari West was born on June 8th, 1977, and he and his mother, Donda, lived at 7815 South Shore Drive right here in Chicago. Jillian Mariah Hopkins, that's me, uh, I was born on May 6th, 1979, and me and my mother, Kim, lived at 8367 South Shore Drive right here in Chicago. So for those of you not familiar with the city or how numbers work, that is just five blocks away from one another. We both had single moms. We're both from the south side. We both look amazing in a pink polo shirt. Um, <laughs> But did Kanye West and I go to the same school or anything like that? No. Did we ever or have we ever hung out or even met? Also no. But do those facts make us any less uh, pretty much cousins as far as black people are concerned? Hell no, uh, because that's just how things work. And it is true, when Donda died in 2007, we all saw it take its toll on Kanye. A man lost his mother. It was his uh, support system, it was his primary parent. She was his biggest fan. He wouldn't be uh, famous if it wasn't for, for Donda West. And that'll change you. But it really, really, really fucking changed, yay. And we've all had front row seats as our cousin worked through the grief of that. And he ended an engagement at about the same time that'll fuck you up. So Yeezy went off the rails, right? We all saw it, we're all seeing it. It's happening right now. I don't even, it's like five o'clock. Who knows what has happened since we all got here. <laughs> But since so many of us love his music and want him to succeed and also share the trade in common that we intrinsically don't trust Taylor Swift and just like actively root for her career downfall, hashtag petty, hashtag fight me. <laughs> We still defended Kanye. Since last week, Kanye West has gone full MAGA, full Make, make America Great Again, and has gained, oh, oh, a whole new faction of fans, everyone. A whole new faction of fans. We all, 
We all kind of saw this coming last year, right? When uh, Kanye visited Donald Trump at the tower, at the Trump Towers, right after the inauguration. He was posing for photos in the elevator lobby. Can we just talk about how the elevator lobby of Trump Tower is not a good background for any skin tone? Like, Donald Trump looked bad. Kanye West looked bad. Ben Carson looked bad. Worse, looked worse. Like. Everybody coming through the Trump Towers looks washed out. It's terrible. They really need to rethink that whole color scheme. Um, but, like, he went kind of underground after that. His wife had another kid. We didn't hear from Kanye for a while, so we just kind of uh, swept it under the rug, and I think we chose to forget. Now, this is the point in the show where I acknowledge and realize that there are plenty of people out there, and maybe in this room, who never liked Kanye. They never liked him. They didn't uh, think that he was a good musician or because they thought he was a narcissist. And I just, or they just don't like hip hop. And uh, those people lack nuance and are basic. So we're just going to move on. We're just going to move all the way the fuck on. I loved him, not in spite of his eccentricities and narcissism, but because of it. Kanye has gotten to be crazy in a way that's usually reserved for white people. <laughs> it's amazing. It was really, really cool to see the same people who love Charlie Sheen and got like fucking dragon, like tiger blood tattoos, hate Kanye for being equally nuts, but exponentially more talented. <laughs> like, what kind of world are we fucking living in? It is because that while trying to make it look like he embraces independent thought, he's now in cahoots with people who actively hate people that look like him and who look like me. It is not just the president, but it's people with don't tread on me flags as their Twitter avatars who always call it crap music, who are now coming to the defense of Kanye West in this new brain space that he's in. It is because he's making me, having defended him this whole time, I look like a whole ass fool right now. Like, come on. We supported our cousin and he's throwing, he's throwing us under the bus. And it's because as black people, the one luxury that we have had generally, the one advantage we've had over white people is that we have not had to argue with our relatives at Thanksgiving about Donald Trump. And now we fucking have to do that. I'm so fucking mad right now. I'm so mad. It's not even like close to Thanksgiving time and I'm always already like, uh, there, there's John Legend, bless his heart, has, and I don't mean that in a Southern way where I really mean fuck him. I, I'm actually saying bless John Legend for having to do this work and texting him and just being like, what are we doing, man? People listen to you. But also I have a single coming out on Monday, so get that out there too. John Legend is all of us. Uh, he, it is because white people are talking about a black man being in the sunken place like they didn't invent the fucking sunken place. <laughs> On Wednesday, 20th century uh, poet laureate Ja Rule tweeted. <laughs> I think, Ja Rule tweeted, I think I'm one of the most influential rappers of all time. <laughs> And someone else responded, Job, we're really having a fucking hell of a week right now. <laughs> Ain't nobody had time to unpack this statement. <laughs> and that's where we're at. Thank y'all. Have a good rest of the day.
That was Jill Hopkins of Vocalo. And this was the Paper Machete Audio Magazine. Thanks so much for listening. The Paper Machete is produced by Liam Munsey and myself, Christopher Pyatt. Our audio engineer is Jacob Serio. If you'd like to support the Machete during this weird crisis period by becoming a monthly donor, please visit thepapermachete.org support. I'm told we did lose our Coke Foundation grant earlier in this episode, so we need you now more than ever. Or you can just please tell fans of the show that we exist in cyberspace now. That would be a big help, too. Enjoy one more from Natalie Grace Alford, and we'll see you next week. And as always, good night, Mrs. Steinberg, wherever you are. know that you are too close to my heart and you see that it is tearing me apart and when I hear the tales of how you remember the old days and you know that well it never went like that anyway Every time I choose, I will always lose Because I ain't too confident And every time I sigh, I get a question as to why Because I ain't too confident And when I try to plea, I get the worst there is to be Because I ain't too confident with you With you, my love and blood Because you know that you are at the core That is something that I never thought could be I thought that maybe you won't make you But really see who I am But it'll never happen It's like a run in the sky Because every time I choose I will always lose Because I ain't too confident And every time I sigh it that's why, because I ain't too confident And when I try to play, I get the worst there is to be Because I ain't too confident with you, with you My love and blood I cannot shake this, it's a hurt inside Too close.
Thank you guys for name Sally Grace Hopwood.